What is Bob Dylan? This is the ninth episode in an ongoing series of broadcasts about the life and work of Bob Dylan. First, the plug. This series is free of charge, but your help in spreading the word is greatly appreciated. That means subscribing, downloading episodes, checking out the website, following on social media, and sharing with as many friends or acquaintances as you're able. The previous episode, number eight, was a little bit of a deviation from the chronology. We talked about Dylan as a filmmaker and Dylan's work in film, but now we're picking up where we left off in episode seven, which was the end of 1971. Dylan didn't record a lot in 71, just a couple of studio sessions, some work with Leon Russell, and probably the highlight of the year was Dylan's wonderful surprise appearance at the concert for Bangladesh at Madison Square Garden in New York City. It had been a long time since Dylan had been on stage anywhere, and he was backed up by an all-star band, and he delivered a beautiful set. In episode seven, I talked about how the video of Dylan's performance from the Bangladesh benefit was hard to find now, but since then, a full video clip has surfaced on the internet, so I've included that link on the A. Bob Dylan Primer website on the page for episode eight. This is A. Bob Dylan Primer, episode nine, Blood, Desire, and the Last Waltz. So 1971 comes to a close. Dylan's just released the George Jackson single and recorded a couple of sessions where he's playing behind Allen Ginsberg reciting poetry. But Dylan's output has really slowed down. And then we come to the year 1972. And amazingly, Dylan does no recording for that entire year. And it seems like he might be done. At least done in the sense of no more will Dylan be creating or performing any new material with any really dynamic content. Something else about this moment, back to the personal for a second, is that this is precisely the moment where I, as a kid in junior high, first got interested in Bob Dylan in a serious way. A girlfriend gave me a copy of a book that was really the first sort of definitive biography of Dylan called Bob Dylan, written by Anthony Scaduto. And I read that book cover to cover and over and over and absorbed every word. And again, it seemed to me that I was reading a biography of the newest of the greats, but still one of the greats from the past, who was now maybe finished with his career and creative work. I don't want to harp too much on this sense of Dylan being done. And I was just a kid, so I can't speak for what other people were thinking back then. But just trying to put Dylan's work and output at that moment into some kind of perspective. The perception was that Dylan's career was basically over, even though he was only 31 years old. But that was pretty old in rock and roll years at that time. The Beatles had broken up, the 60s were over, and it seemed like Dylan had completed his work, and we really didn't know what he was going to do, but the expectation was that he was not going to be actively creating music anymore. And so the year of 1972 was a time of sort of evaluating Dylan's career up to that point. One thing Dylan was doing in 1972 was working on a book of collected lyrics, which again was not something that other rock or pop artists had done too often, and again kind of points to the summing up feeling that surrounded Dylan's career at that point, as if this book of lyrics that was published was the sum total of everything Dylan had done and would ever do. 
And then, at the end of 1972 and early 73, news surfaced that Dylan was going to be acting in a movie, a western directed by Sam Peckinpah, and also that Dylan was going to be doing the soundtrack. The movie was called Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and Dylan has a small but very memorable part playing a character called Alias. How perfect, right? And the movie came out in the spring of 1973 and was received with pretty much universal dislike. Famous film critic Roger Ebert ended his review by writing, The movie fails to work up much excitement, and the title song by Bob Dylan is quite simply awful. Most forward-thinking or politically progressive people were not huge fans of Peckinpah's work at that time. He was attacked regularly for promoting violence because of the violence of his films. But still, I was excited when the movie was released, and I went to see it opening week in a theater on Hollywood Boulevard, and there was barely anyone in the house watching the movie. A couple of months after the movie came out, in July of 1973, the soundtrack album was released, with Knockin' on Heaven's Door as a single. And that song did well, got heavy radio play all summer and fall of 1973. Although the big rock critics had mostly bad things to say about the record. Robert Christgau gave it a C, and John Landau wrote the following in Rolling Stone magazine. It is every bit as inept, amateurish, and embarrassing as self-portrait. And it has all the earmarks of a deliberate courting of commercial disaster, a flirtation that is apparently part of an attempt to free himself from previously imposed obligations derived from his audience. So, again, back to the personal, it's just at that moment that I'm starting to focus pretty hard on Dylan's music that he seems to be retreating from the public eye, and also not so much in critical favor. Of course, I was falling in love with all kinds of pop and rock music at that time. I was listening to Top 40 radio and FM radio, but nothing could compare to my feelings about Dylan. It's just that there wasn't that much happening with him. In those days, I would religiously read the LA Times rock critic, Robert Hilburn, hoping for some news about Dylan. And as far as I can remember, Hilburn would publish three columns a week. There was a big Sunday article, and then there was a sort of smaller article on Thursday about things coming up on the weekend. And then on Saturday, he usually had a small column that ran in the metro section, or the local section, page two or three, which was basically kind of rock news, bands that might be coming to town. And on November 3rd, 1973, I opened up the paper that Saturday morning. It was around 10 a.m., and I went right for Hilburn's column, and I read these words. Ready for a bombshell? Bob Dylan and the band are going to tour. And I threw the paper down on the ground and went running around my family's house screaming at the top of my lungs. It seemed unimaginable that Dylan was going to tour and that I was going to have the chance to see him perform live. And here was this bolt out of the blue that Dylan was going to put on this major tour. So suddenly, Dylan was back in the news in a big way. There was also an announcement that Dylan had left Columbia Records and signed a new deal with David Geffen and that a new album would be coming out soon. And in fact, in January 1974, FM radio began playing tracks from the new record, which was released that month and which was called Planet Waves. The tour was the biggest seller in American rock history. Tickets were mail order only, and the promoter, Bill Graham, received more than 5 million requests in the mail for approximately 500,000 seats total. 
The tour kicked off in Chicago on January 3rd, 1974, and it took six weeks for the tour to get to Los Angeles. And on February 13th, 1973, I drove down to the Los Angeles Forum and sat in my seat in the 33rd row on the floor. The lights went out, the crowd went nuts, and the spotlight was on, and the band kicked into a very hard rocking version of Most Likely You'll Go Your Way. And Dylan stepped to the microphone and spat out the lyrics. And it was probably the most exciting moment of my life up to that point. Today, the 74 tour is looked down upon a little bit. And Dylan and others have said some disparaging things about the tour performances, about how Dylan was just going through the motions. But I don't really buy that. I think it's another one of those Dylan obfuscations. And I think Dylan really put his heart into the performances every night. The concert was memorialized in a double album set called Before the Flood, most of which was taken from the Los Angeles shows, and there are some bootlegs out there as well that showcase some terrific performances. So I think Tour 74 is actually a lot stronger than people today are giving it credit for. Talking about the new album that was released just as the tour got started, called Planet Waves, it was notable for many reasons. It was the first album of new material released by Dylan outside of the Pat Garrett soundtrack in four years, and it was also on a new record label, and David Geffen had scored a real coup by getting Dylan to leave Columbia Records and sign with him for a new label Geffen started called Asylum Records. So the record came out, and it was very well received, though in hindsight I'm not sure how strong of an album it really is. It was recorded very quickly over a three-day period in Los Angeles, with the band as the backup musicians. Of course, there are some terrific songs on the record. One song that appears twice in a slow and fast version is called Forever Young, and that song stands today as one of Dylan's key anthems. It's kind of a companion to Blowin' in the Wind, which is a more political or universal anthem, whereas Forever Young might be Dylan's most personal anthem. And it's a beautiful, simple song that Dylan has said was written for one of his children. The most haunting song on the album is called Dirge, which is a desperate breakup song. And the first line is, I hate myself for loving you. And it kind of spirals downhill from there. It's an amazing song and an amazing performance that was captured on the record. Dylan's never done the song live, but it's worth listening to from Planet Ways. And there are several other dark songs on the record that sort of prefigure what's coming next for Dylan. One called Going, Going, Gone, and the other called simply Wedding Song. And there's also a beautiful up-tempo tribute to some love object called Something There Is About You. So, the album comes out and the tour is a huge success, culminating with the final shows in Los Angeles on February 13th and 14th, 1974. So now, it's the spring of 74 and Dylan is kind of back in the mainstream. But in his personal life, things are difficult. I don't want to speculate too much, but Dylan had just been out on the road for many months and he was never known to be the most faithful partner, so reports of trouble in his marriage to Sarah start to bubble out of the ground. Around this time, Dylan starts taking painting lessons in New York City from a painter named Norman Rabin. According to what Dylan said in interviews a few years later, he became curious about Rabin when he heard friends of Sarah talking about taking classes with him. Rabin was in his 70s at the time, and he was the son of the Yiddish writer Shalom Alechem, and a painter with a decent reputation. So here's Dylan going through a separation from his wife and taking painting classes every day from this older man who had an air of mysticism about him. 
And Dylan said that Rabin taught him how to see. And it seems like one of the specific aspects of Rabin's teaching was a notion that past, present, and future can all coexist. And this notion seemed to really spark something deep inside Dylan's creative psyche. So there's a few things going on at once. One is that Dylan is re-emerging into the public after a somewhat fallow period. Also, Dylan has this tremendously painful struggle going on as he's separating from his wife Sarah, and he also seems to have stumbled upon or cobbled together a new way of creating work inspired by these painting lessons. And so, these three things kind of swirl around each other and coalesce as Dylan suddenly writes a batch of new songs very quickly and then books studio time in New York City because he seems to be hell-bent to get these songs recorded while the inspiration is still burning. Interestingly, Dylan goes back to Columbia Records. He leaves David Geffen and Asylum Records after just two albums, Planet Waves and the Live Before the Flood double record. And he returns to Columbia Records in August of 1974. And he returns to the big studio in downtown Manhattan, Studio A, where he'd recorded all of his early material. The studio was now called A&R Studios and no longer owned by Columbia, but it was the same space with the same great sonic vibe. And so it's a little bit of a homecoming, and Dylan goes into the studio in mid-September and calls in a few musicians and starts laying down these new songs, playing them on acoustic guitar with some sparse accompaniment. And Dylan records 10 songs in four days, and after about another week of mixing, the album's finished and things are moving forward fast. And by November, there's a test pressing of the record, and Columbia is set to release the album in just a few weeks, before Christmas, which will obviously boost sales. But then, all of a sudden, Dylan has a change of heart. He wants to re-record some of the songs on the album. Most accounts say that Dylan was persuaded, in part by his brother David, that the songs are all too much of a downer, too sparsely recorded, and that a more up-tempo backing would make the record more commercial. So Dylan goes to Minnesota over Christmas break to spend time with his family. And while he's there, his brother David gathers together a group of local musicians and Dylan re-records five of the tracks with a faster tempo and denser arrangements. And the album is released in January of 1975 and it's called Blood on the Tracks. And what a record to kick off the second half of the 1970s. Blood on the Tracks pretty much caused a sensation. It was heralded as Dylan absolutely returning to the top of his game. The critics loved it, the old Dylan fans loved it, and the record brought and continues to bring new fans to Dylan. If you ask a group of Dylan fans to tell you their favorite Dylan album, probably half will say Blood on the Tracks. It's an album that really resonates strongly with people. Dylan has repeatedly gone on the record as saying that Blood on the Tracks is not autobiographical. But of course it's autobiographical, at least to some extent. And a lot of the songs have to do with the breakup of Dylan's marriage to Sarah, and we experience Dylan making a conscious choice to fracture his personal life, using the techniques he may or may not have learned from Norman Rabin, and then putting the pieces back together in this series of songs. Comparing the original recordings made in New York with the songs that were re-recorded in Minnesota, a lot of people feel like the original New York sessions were better, but many people are 
also fond of the Minnesota tracks as well and prefer those. Ultimately, what does it matter? My own personal feeling about the songs recorded in New York versus the ones re-recorded in Minnesota is that the New York versions are just simply too raw, too revealing, and Dylan was uncomfortable exposing that much heart muscle to the oxidizing atmosphere of public opinion. Also, Dylan probably felt, and maybe rightfully so, that it would have hurt the album commercially if it was exclusively from the New York sessions, because those tracks are so sparse and so slowed down that it's easy to imagine the album might not have done as well as it did. But all that is just speculation. What isn't speculation is the music itself, which exists and will exist as long as we keep backing up our hard drives. Recently, Dylan and his record company put out all of the tracks that were recorded for Blood on the Tracks, which includes the New York sessions and all the outtakes. Now, I created my own album of these songs using the track order from Blood on the Tracks, plus two songs that did not make the album, which are Call Letter Blues and Up to Me. And I chose the versions that I liked the most, which were the most raw, the most heart-ripping versions. I don't in any way want to suggest that this version of Blood on the Tracks is a better album or a more definitive album than what was released, but it's simply an ordering of those songs that to me represents the most vulnerable expression of emotion, and for me, that's the version I like to listen to. If you want to hear this set of tracks, you can go onto the website at www.abobdylanprimer.com, and on the About page, there's a link to send an email, or... You can just send an email to info at abobdylanprimer.com and I will email you back a link to a track listing so you can listen to this version. We'll call it Blood on the Tracks Raw. (laughs) Blood on the Tracks. So much has been written about this album. So many people have strong feelings and thoughts and opinions about these songs. I'm not sure I want to try and add too much more here. The way I look at the album, Tangled Up in Blue is kind of like the overture for the album. All of the record's themes and concerns are touched on in that song, and it's also a very strong example of the new narrative technique that Dylan was working with, a fracturing of the point of view, of perspective, shifting narrators, and drastic shifts in time and place within a single song. For whatever reason, Dylan felt he could no longer write songs in the way he had been, And so this new technique freed him up to write songs that were pretty radical in structure. Tangled Up in Blue is kind of the anchor of the record, and it's mirrored on the album by Shelter from the Storm. And then you've got these two kind of companion songs, both bittersweet, both breakup songs, If You See Her Say Hello, and You're a Big Girl Now. And then there's the amazing Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts, which is like a three-hour movie compressed into a nine-minute ballad played really fast. Anyway... You're either already very familiar with Blood on the Tracks, or you will be soon. So no point in breaking the whole thing down too much more. So, Blood on the Tracks does well commercially. Dylan's coming off a successful tour, and he's back in the mainstream. And he's got kind of some new ways of seeing things creatively. And so he starts to think big again. And partially as a reaction to the rigid structure of the 1974 tour... Dylan starts to imagine a different way of touring, like a caravan or traveling circus that would tour from town to town, picking up guest artists along the way, just showing up in a town unannounced, putting up a tent, 
and playing for the local people. That kind of an idea. And at the same time, Dylan starts thinking about making another movie. The last movie having been Eat the Document. And if you haven't heard it yet, I refer you to episode 8, in which we talked about Dylan as a filmmaker and his career as a movie maker. And Dylan wants to include some of his new creative strategies into this new movie idea. Shifting perspective, shifting points of view, the notion of masks, stuff like that. So these ideas come together in the fall of 1975, as Dylan puts together the Rolling Thunder Review, which will be the caravan-like tour. And he also puts together a feature film crew to document the tour and to also film various documentary and stage scenes along the way for a movie which will ultimately be called Ronaldo and Clara, a sprawling, messy epic that runs nearly five hours when it's first finished. So, in October 1975, Dylan starts rehearsing with a motley crew of musicians, including Roger McGuinn from The Birds, Mick Ronson from David Bowie's Spiders from Mars Band, Ronnie Blakely, a singer and actress who starred in the movie Nashville, Joan Baez, T-Bone Burnett, just a whole bunch of different musicians and characters. But before Dylan started rehearsing for the Rolling Thunder extravaganza, he recorded a brand new album of songs, mostly during the summer of 1975. And the first single from that album was called Hurricane, and it came out in January of 1976, just as Dylan was kicking off this ragtag tour of cities and towns in the Northeast United States. And Hurricane was a story of Hurricane Carter, a middleweight boxer who had been unjustly imprisoned for a murder he did not commit. And the song created a little bit of a stir. A lot of fans felt it was Dylan coming back to protest songs. And it was long, eight and a half minutes long. Amazingly, Dylan's record brought a lot of attention to Reuben Carter's cause, and many years later, he was finally freed from prison. Shortly after the Hurricane single is released, the full album comes out, and it's called Desire. Just about a year has elapsed since Blood on the Tracks was released, and people are in a pretty Dylan-friendly mood, and Desire is well-received. The two albums are often seen as sort of companion records because they came out relatively close in time to each other, and they're both quite different in song and writing style than what came before. But they're actually very, very different from each other as well. Desire is enigmatic. Most of the songs are credited to both Dylan and a theater director and writer named Jacques Levy, who Dylan met in the village around this time. It's not exactly clear why Dylan asked Jacques Levy to collaborate with him on these songs, but listening to the record now, it occurs to me that Dylan may have felt the need to retreat a little bit, to pull back inside his shell some, after the spectacularly revealing document that was blood on the tracks. I think Dylan was looking for a mask, for another mask, and literally during the Rolling Thunder tour performances, Dylan wore a mask or white face for most of the shows, and he had a lot of people on stage most of the time, and he was creating a spectacle, and I think bringing Jacques Levy on board, who came from a theatrical background, and who may have added some sort of theatrical flourishes to the lyrics on Desire, might have been part of this probably unconscious strategy to put a little bit of space between Dylan and his audience again. It's not known exactly how much or how little Jacques Levy contributed to the songs on Desire, but he is credited on all of the album songs except two, those being One More Cup of Coffee and Sarah. 
The first song on Desire is Hurricane, and that kind of throws the album out of balance because it's a very dominant and direct song in terms of its lyrical content. It's a wonderful retelling of the saga of Reuben Hurricane Carter and a very bold plea for his release from prison. But after Hurricane, things on the record get a lot more mysterious. The next song is called One More Cup of Coffee, and it's a song that apparently Dylan was inspired to write after he spent some time at a Romany gathering in the south of France. And that track, One More Cup of Coffee, and in fact, this entire album, brings in a lot of new musical colors for Dylan. He's borrowing from Romany songs, Arab melodies and scales, klezmer music. He's working in a different melodic arena than he had been previously. These songs are not nearly as close to traditional folk and blues forms as his earlier material. And the most direct manifestation of this comes from the beautiful and haunting violin played by Scarlett Rivera throughout the album. Each song on the record is its own little mystery. There's a very long song called Joey, about the mob boss Joey Gallo, who was gunned down at Umberto's Clam House in Little Italy in New York City. And the song kind of turns Joey into a hero, or anti-hero. And very few commentators or people who are familiar with the figures of organized crime in the 1970s would have labeled Joe Gallo as a hero. But again, it's Dylan taking the opposite tack and trying to present the idea that things aren't exactly the way they seem, so that the true villains are not always who we think they are. And that's a theme, obviously, that runs through much of Dylan's work. Another mystery on the record is called Sarah. And again, Dylan has disavowed that the song is autobiographical, but it might be the most directly autobiographical song he's ever written. And it's the only song he's ever written about a woman in his life who he actually name-checks in the song with her actual name, in this case, Sarah, who is Dylan's wife or ex-wife at this point. And the song includes some highly specific personal lyrics, the most well-known being when Dylan sings Staying Up for Days in the Chelsea Hotel, writing Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands for You which has sent several generations of Dylan scholars into a tizzy. The melody of the song is again somewhat Arab or Eastern sounding, and it's a tortured love song to Sarah because by all accounts they were separated at this point. But here's the thing. In a way, aside from this song, Sarah, or maybe in spite of it, Desire seems to be the most impersonal of Dylan's records up to this point. Even though it's rich with ideas and images, there's something about it that feels removed from Dylan. Impersonal is probably the wrong word, but the songs seem cut off from Dylan in a certain way, and that again might be the influence of Jacques Levy's contributions to the record. There are also two densely layered, highly cinematic songs on the album. One is Romance in Durango, which was said to be inspired by Dylan's time in Mexico on the set of the Pat Garrett movie, and another song that I like a great deal, and it's kind of underrated or underappreciated, called Black Diamond Bay. And it's like the ultimate shaggy dog story that includes a lot of perspective shifts. It's highly entertaining, and Dylan's vocal is really warm and touched with a lot of humor throughout the song. One other thing I'd like to say about the record is that Dylan's vocal phrasing reaches some new heights in terms of where the beats fall and what syllables Dylan is choosing to emphasize. He's really playing with phrasing in a wonderful way throughout the album. In any case, Desire was pretty well received and Hurricane got some airplay. But beyond that, the record didn't have too great of an impact. Most of the Dylan news at that time had to do with Dylan doing the Rolling Thunder tour 
which ended in the spring of 1976. And the Rolling Thunder Review Tour was actually in two parts. Dylan and his carnival band played a series of shows in late 1975, and then they took a break and came back in the spring of 76. And the two versions of the tour sound pretty distinct from each other. Some wonderful music was made on those tours, especially when Dylan was singing solo. But I also feel the achievement of the tour might have been more the breaking down of traditional rock touring structures than maybe pushing Dylan music or its relationship with the audience forward. As I mentioned in episode 8, Martin Scorsese made a documentary about the tour using a lot of the 1975 concert footage, along with some new interviews. Hopefully, one of these days we'll get a chance to see a fully restored Ronaldo and Clara, which I think might be the best distillation of the Rolling Thunder tour. So, we're in 1976, and the next big piece of news about Dylan happens that fall. And that was an announcement that Dylan might appear as a special guest star for the farewell concert by the band, which ended up being the last waltz at Winterland in San Francisco on Thanksgiving weekend 1976. Tickets were announced, and I was in Los Angeles, and I was able to get a ticket for $25, which was a lot of money then. And I drove up to San Francisco and got in, and Dylan did perform, and I was able to get right up against the stage for Dylan's set which of course was memorialized in the concert film of the event directed by Martin Scorsese called The Last Waltz. And the concert was wonderful and it was amazing to see Dylan that close again, especially after it had once seemed, not that long ago, that he would never appear live on stage again. Looking back from today, it does seem like The Last Waltz marked the end of something. Not just the end of the band as a touring unit, but also for Dylan. It seemed like this could have been the end of maybe the second large chunk of his career, which may have started in 1967 with the Basement Tapes. It's always tricky and probably not too productive to put too much stock in these arbitrary dividing lines, but still, there's a sense of a big chapter closing after the last waltz. And just when you thought, maybe Dylan has run out of changes, he's about to pull off the most shocking transformation of his entire career. It has to do with damnation and salvation, and yes, religion too, but it's still a big mystery for most. So we're going to try and pick it apart a little in episode 10. Thank you for listening, and if you'd like to hear some of the music referenced in this broadcast, please check out the public playlists I created on Spotify under the name A. Bob Dylan Primer. Also, please visit our website at abobdylanprimer.com to lend your support and find cool supporting content about Bob Dylan, including links to some amazing stuff. Again, that's abobdylanprimer.com. And thank you very much. <laughs>